The following lecture was delivered at the 15th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Atlanta, Georgia, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it, and we encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Dr. Alan Berger now presents his lecture, Emotional Sobriety. Thank you, thank you, thank you very much. Well, I hope uh, you just attended um, Rabbi Tobb's talk on thirsting for God, because in many ways this is going to be the next step, right, in terms of what he was talking about. Um, it, first of all, it was brilliant. I just love Rabbi Tobb's work, and I love his book. And this is the, the quote that he was talking about from Dr. Jung when he was talking to Roland Hazard about what needed to happen in his life to make a change, right? And he talked about that, that you have to have this vital spiritual experience. And he said it appears in the nature of these huge emotional displacements and rearrangements, meaning that the ideas, emotions, and attitudes, which were once the guiding force of the lives of these men, are suddenly cast to one side in a completely new set of conceptions and motives begin to dominate them. So the question is, what is that transformation? What happens to a person, right? What is this new set of ideas and concepts that have to happen in our lives in order to have this vital spiritual experience? I love that what I heard is that one way of defining spirituality is is kind of an illumination, right? Is that we start to look at things in a very, very different way. Well, I think you're gonna find in this discussion of emotional sobriety, what Bill was really, really starting to talk about and what he integrated into the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, which now we call emotional sobriety. So here's the problem in a nutshell in our life, right? Life happens, right? And it does, right? Life happens all the time. You know, some people say shit happens, but life happens. And the issue is, is what do we do with that? What do we do with the experience? Well, here's where the problem comes in. Is early on in life, we develop a set of ideas on how life is supposed to be. And those ideas are grounded in an idea that we have that's going to reverse some of the pain and trauma from our past. And so now we project into the future these ideas on how life is supposed to be, and when life doesn't conform to our expectations, we suffer, we don't know what to do, we don't know how to deal with these things. We get stuck. We, you know, end up having a lot of, we complain, <laughs> oh my God, look at this terrible thing. We fall into self-pity, we get depressed, we have all kinds of reactions because we really don't know what to do. And emotional sobriety is about learning what to do. Well, one way of thinking about recovery is that we think, need to think of it in stages, right? The first stage of recovery, and, and Rabbi Tob talked about that, is somehow this desire to drink has to be removed, right? Because if you're drinking, you're not going to grow up. You're stuck. You're doing the same thing over and over again. And so we got to get the plug in the jug. But this is Ernie Larson, and Ernie said this, and it was so important. He said, recovery isn't demands change. Recovery means that things have to be different than the way they are. It means that I have to be different than I was. 
So what is that difference? Well, let's kind of take a look at that in terms of what this is. So first of all, Bill Wilson, 20 years later, after he wrote the big book, realized that the steps not only help people achieve physical sobriety, but they help people and those around them achieve emotional sobriety. And by the end of this talk, you'll all know what that means. So here's the first stage of recovery. Stage one is breaking the bonds of addiction. That's what Ernie Larson said. It's we break the bonds of addiction, breaking our primary addiction. But as he said, abstinence, while it may get you out of a bad place, getting out of a bad place just gets you out. It's not the same as getting into a better place in our lives. So something more needs to happen. And he recognized that, and he called it stage two recovery. He wrote a book in 1985 that was called Stage 2 Recovery, and this is how he defined it, that Stage 2 Recovery gets at the underlying patterns and habits that caused us trouble in the first place. He goes, if nothing changes and nothing changes, the same results will pop up through our whole life. Well, what is he talking about? What has to change? Well, he had some insight into that. He says dealing with the mountain of living is what Stage 2 Recovery is all about. It is about getting on with life by facing those patterns, habits, and attitudes that control your life and which for perhaps the first time you are clear-headed, sober, or emotionally sound enough to face. Well, that's what we're going to look at is what are these patterns and habits that cause us trouble. Now, it's my belief that stage two recovery is contingent on this thing that Bill Wilson called emotional sobriety. I think many oldsters who have put our booze cure to severe but successful tests still find that they often lack emotional sobriety. Perhaps they will be the spearhead for the next major development in AA, the development of much more real maturity and balance, which is to say, humility, in our relations with ourselves, with our fellows, and with God. So in 1956, somebody in California wrote a letter to the general service office in New York and said, look, I'm a part of the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. I've got depression. And can the steps help me with my depression? Now, Bill Wilson suffered, for depression, suffered with depression his whole life. And he really, as a seeker, was trying to understand what causes this. And so when he saw this letter, he says, God, I, I want to respond to that. This is the beginning of his response, which was then published in the AA Grapevine in 1958. So what we're going to hear is Bill's synthesis, synopsis of all he learned about emotional sobriety. Here he hoped back then it would spearhead the next major movement in recovery, which it really didn't, and that's unfortunate. I think it's happening now. More and more people are paying attention to this issue. I think we're getting towards the tipping point. At least I hope we are. I think the reason it didn't happen is that what happened in the program is people took what we call a spiritual bypass to dealing with problems. There was this big popular thing going on in the program was the God box. So if you had a problem, you wrote it on a piece of paper and you put it in a box and then God took care of it for you. Well, good luck with that. <laughs> Sometimes things changed in your life, and then you'd attribute that to it. No, but I will, give, if, I will send you the uh, slides in the handouts if you give me your email address or let me know how to get them to you. Right? I know there's so much. Yes. 
So, so what happened is, is that because people use this, what we call a spiritual bypass, they didn't dig down and figure out what's really going on here? What's causing all these troubles I'm having in life? So essentially, people got sober, but they didn't grow up. They didn't mature. They kept doing the same thing emotionally, expecting the same thing, expecting life to conform to their expectations, and they didn't know how to deal with life when it didn't. Now, he defines this emotional sobriety as real maturity and balance. He goes on to call it humility in relationship with ourselves, with our fellows, and with God. Well, what is humility? So, as a psychologist, I, I like to kind of define some of these terms that we're using, and this is the definition of humility that, that was published in the American Psychological Association Psychology Dictionary. So there's three qualities of it. First of all, there's a low focus on self, meaning it's not all about me, right? It's that idea that it's not all about me. The second one is that we have what they call an accurate, not an over or underestimate, of our success in life and our accomplishments. And also, there's an acknowledgement of our limitations, our imperfections, our mistakes, our gaps in knowledge, and so on. So this humility means that I have to understand that life is not going to conform to my expectations. I'm not that important. And this is the whole struggle that Bill even identified. He says the root of alcoholism is our self-centeredness, our selfishness, our self-will run riot, demanding that people and things do what we want them to do. That was the essence of the struggle. So the humility he's talking about is that I don't have any business putting my expectations on you on how you should behave to make me feel good. I don't have any business putting my expectations on life and how life should be so it conforms to my expectations so that I feel okay. See, it's not about me. And that's what this emotional sobriety is all about, is getting right balance, right size, that kind of thing. Those adolescent urges that so many of us have for top approval, perfect security, and perfect romance urges quite appropriate to age 17, prove to be an impossible way of life when we are at age 47 or 57. So Rabbi Tab was talking about the false self, right, if you were in his talk. And what is his false self? Well, early on in life, we experience a basic anxiety, right? Because being loved, being accepted, belonging is so important to us, right? We need that connection, that relationship. But this anxiety starts to come up very early in life that says, oh my God, maybe I'm not gonna be good enough. So who do I have to become to get this love, to be accepted, to belong? And we start to imagine this idealized self, that if I become this way, then I'm gonna be okay. Then you're gonna love me, then I'm gonna belong. Then I'm gonna feel accepted. So now we reject ourselves and we dedicate our lives to actualizing a concept of who we should be rather than actualizing our true self, an actual self. So how can life work when the very foundation of our life is based on a rejection of who we are? Can't do it. 
when Jung talked about that, that our being is moving towards wholeness. That's what God has built into us, this desire to be what we can be, to be connected, to move towards oneness. You know, in psychology, we call it self-actualization. Well, when you dedicate your life to actualizing a concept of who you should be, you can never actualize who you really are. It's impossible because the energy is going in the wrong direction. I think of it like miracle grow. You put it on weeds, the weeds are going to grow great. But we don't want to put it on weeds. We want to grow who we are, right? That kind of a thing. So Bill talks about it here. We want top approval. That's what we think we need. Everybody's going to, to like us. Perfect security that I'm going to feel okay all the time, right? That things are just going to, I'm going to be okay. I'm not going to ever be anxious. I'm not going to be depressed. I'm not going to have any insecurities. No self-doubt. Perfect romance. My partner will always do what I want them to do. Yeah, good luck with that one, right? <laughs> I mean, that doesn't happen, does it? Not at all. He goes, those ideas, those expectations turn out to be an impossible way of life. Because when my well-being depends on what's happening around me, I'm never going to have well-being. When my well-being depends on me regulating you in the conditions around me, I'm never going to be okay. It's not going to happen. Since AA began, I've taken immense wallops in all those areas because of my failure to grow up emotionally and spiritually. My God, how painful it is to keep demanding the impossible and how very painful to discover, finally, that all along we had the cart before the horse. Then comes the final agony of seeing how awfully wrong we have been, but still finding ourselves unable to get off the emotional merry-go-round. So this is Bill, and this is, I loved his honesty. Now remember, he wrote this in 1956, so this is 21 years into his recovery, and he's still talking about his failure to grow up. Right? And he just realizing how stuck he was in his life with these expectations. Demanding the impossible means demanding that life is going to conform to my expectations. That's not going to happen. When we fight reality, reality is always going to win. You're never going to change it. You know, life is what it is, right? And as we're going to talk about it, it's how we cope with it that's going to determine your well-being. That's the bottom line in this stuff. Putting the cart before the horse, right? Trying to control all those situations and people around me instead of trying to grow myself up. That's the cart before the horse. How to translate a right mental conviction into a right emotional result, and so into easy, happy, and good living? Well, that's not only the neurotic's problem, it's the problem of life itself for all of us who have got to the point of real willingness to hew to right principles in all of our affairs. So as Rabbi Tob was saying, this stuff just can't be an idea, right? We have to integrate it. It has to be integrated emotionally, not just intellectually. Intellectual component's an important part of it, right? It's kind of understanding, it's seeing. 
but we have to be able to live it and try this stuff on because when you do, then it becomes a part of you. It's not just an idea, right? It becomes a part of your experience and who you are. And Bill realized that, is that while the principles in AA are these great spiritual principles, somehow we need to make them more practical so that they are now changing, right, transforming the way that we are dealing with life. Even then, as we hew away, peace and joy may still elude us. That's the place so many AA oldsters have come to. And it's a hell of a spot, literally. How shall our unconscious, from which so many of our fears, compulsions, and phony aspirations still stream, be brought into line with what we actually believe, know, and want. How to convince our dumb, raging, and hidden Mr. Hyde becomes our main task. So, um, Bill really realized, you know, what he, what he really saw that was true in his life was that these forces that were driving him, he didn't have full awareness of, right? that there were things going on that were outside of his awareness. That was Freud's major contribution, you know, is that there are forces within us that are influencing us, you know, having an impact on our life and our behavior that we're not aware of, that we just push outside of our awareness. So now, in Bill's work, he started to become aware of these fears. His fear was that I'm not going to be loved and accepted and belong. That's that fear he was talking about that's in our unconscious. It creates these compulsions being driven to be a certain way, phony aspirations, I'm going to get everybody to like me and love me, right? Those are the things, those are the emotional compromises that we make to try to be okay, to try to find a way to ensure our existence, to ensure our wholeness. He says, well, how can these be brought in line? He says, with what we actually believe, know, and want, I like to say, how can these be brought in line with reality of who we really are and how people grow, right? See, that's the issue here. And that's what emotional sobriety does, as we're going to find out. I've recently come to believe that this can be achieved. I believe so because I begin to see many benighted ones, folks like you and me, commencing to get results. Last autumn, depression having no really rational cause at all, almost took me to the cleaners. I began to be scared that I was in for another long chronic spell. Considering the grief I've had with depressions, it wasn't a bright prospect. I kept asking myself, why can't the 12 steps work to release depression? By the hour, I stared at the St. Francis prayer. It's better to comfort than to be comforted. So we're going to put a bookmark there. Here was there. the formula, all right. But why didn't it work? Suddenly, I realized what the matter was. My basic flaw had always been dependence, almost absolute dependence on people or circumstances to supply me with prestige, security, and the like. Failing to get these things according to my perfectionist dreams and specifications, I had fought for them. And when defeat came, so did my depression. Well, this was his insight. This was the realization that Bill had in terms of what was going on, 
that was creating these problems in his life. He even felt that these were the things that set him up to become an alcoholic in the first place. Now, he calls it his basic flaw. He says dependence. We're going to call it emotional dependency or emotional dependence. It was on people and circumstances to supply me with prestige, security, and like. This is called other-validated self-esteem. That my self-esteem depends on what is happening around me and how people are treating me and how things are going for me. Right? That's what that is about. Now, when Bill says, failing to get these things according to his dreams, his perfectionist dreams and specifications, he fought for them, and when defeat came, so did his depression. So what happens is this emotional dependency turns us into control freaks. Because then we try to control those people or circumstances around us. And we have three ways of responding to that. We either control people overtly by telling them what they should do, that if they were a good person, they would treat me like this, right? If you, if you really loved me, you would. And have you ever said that to someone? Of course you have. I have. We come up with these nonsense ideas that somehow you're supposed to do things to make me okay. And if you love me, that's what it really means, right? It's a nonsense idea when you stop to think about it. He said, our perfectionist dreams and specifications, meaning that I have this idea on how things are supposed to be, and I'm demanding that you comply with these unenforceable rules. That's what you're supposed to do. That's what life is supposed to do. Well, we have three responses to that. Bill fought for them, so he tried to control. We say that your response is either you move against people, so you try to control them, or you rebel against them to get them to do what you want, right? That's what. The other response is, is to just move towards people. You become a people pleaser, you know? And, and we call it the, that solution is based on the appeal of love. If you just love me, I'll be okay. So I'll do anything that you want if you do things the way I want you to do. That's what's behind it. So that's a covert manipulation as opposed to the overt a manipulation about just, you know, overtly trying to control someone, taking power over them. Well, the third response is, is to say, forget all of this nonsense. I don't want to play the game. We call that the, the um, appeal of freedom. I'm just going to pretend I'm needless and wantless, so I'm not going to get involved in any of this stuff. Now, none of those things work because they're all based on what I call the big lie that things have to go a certain way for me to be okay. You see, we start life by being very, what we're going to use the word, or I'm going to use the word undifferentiated, right? We're part of our mother. We're in her womb. She's providing us with everything. We have complete dependence on her for our life at that point in time. She's supplying us with oxygen. She's supplying us with nutrition. She's providing us with security. Everything is dependent on our mom. The minute we give birth, we start moving towards being differentiated. What's the first thing that happens if we're neurologically intact? First thing a child does is to do what? Breathe, right? We're now supporting ourselves. We're now taking oxygen in. Mother's no longer breathing for us. We have to support ourselves. We start taking care of ourselves right away. We're on that path. Physically, biologically, that's hardwired in you. God just gave us that. We're on that path. It's going to happen. 
kid reaches around one years old, what do they want to do? They want to walk. You don't have to stand over your kid. Even if you're a helicopter parent, you're not saying, okay, you're one years old now, start walking. Knock this nonsense off. You've been crawling around the house for three months now. I've had it. Get on your two feet and start walking around here. I'm tired of carrying you. Right? We don't do that. That child wants to walk. Right? You've seen it. You've witnessed it. It wants to walk because it wants to be what it can be. We breathe because we want to be what we can be. That's that force, that's that wholeness, right? That movement towards self-actualization. Biologically, it's hardwired in you. You know, unless some terrible things happen to you, you're going to keep growing in that direction. Emotionally, it's much more fragile. We don't grow ourselves towards that state of differentiation in the same way. We need to have certain experiences in our life. We need to grow up as we become adults and learn how to do this and stand on our own two feet instead of thinking that everybody around us has to do certain things for us to be okay. You can make yourself okay regardless of what's going on around you. That's the essence of what emotional sobriety is. It's really fascinating what Bill was talking about and what he discovered is we're going to see he's not the only one. So the way I say it, emotional dependency is a result of a developmental delay, right? We get stuck emotionally. We never mature beyond the point of environmental support to self-support. That's the definition, by the way, of maturity, the transcendence of environmental support to self-support. So we get stuck, right, in our emotional development. We get stuck at this stage of I'm okay if. I'm okay if things go my way. And we don't know how to get to that point of I'm okay even if things don't go my way. But as you can see, that's that level of differentiation, isn't it? If I'm supporting myself, I don't need things to be a certain way to be okay. What do I need to be okay? I need to learn how to meet those challenges that life is setting before me. That's what's going to make me okay, is learning how to cope with life on life's terms. Well, easier said than done. I know that to be true. This is Fritz Perls. This is what he says about our dependency. He's the father of Gestalt therapy. He goes, our dependency makes slaves out of us, especially if this is a dependency of our self-esteem. If you need encouragement, praise, pats on the back from everybody, then you turn everybody into your judge, into your parent. There wasn't a chance of making the outgoing love of St. Francis a workable and joyous way of life until these fatal and almost absolute dependencies were cut away. Because I had over the years undergone a little spiritual development, the absolute quality of these frightful dependencies had never before been so starkly revealed. So what happens is we've got to let go of these dependencies, this idea, the big lie, right? That I'm okay if, right? Because what happens is, is when we end up in a relationship, we don't have a relationship, we take hostages, right? Because what we're doing is we're saying, you better do everything that I think you should do in order for me to feel okay. So we have all of these unenforceable rules about how people are supposed to behave. Virginia Satir, she was a brilliant, brilliant family therapist. She captured this so well in what she said. She goes, one of the truly basic problems is that our society bases the marital relationship completely on love and then imposes demands on it that love can never solely fulfill. 
If you love me, you won't do anything without me. God, I thought that way. If you love me, you'll do what I say. If you love me, you'll give me what I want. If you love me, you'll know what I want even before I ask you. Now, come on, haven't you thought that a few times in your life? Huh? That God, if they really love you, they would be mind-reading. They would just anticipate everything. She goes, these kinds of practices soon turn love into a kind of a blackmail. She calls it the clutch. We call it taking hostages. Right? That's what happens. So we come into a relationship with all these demands, and a lot of these things are unconscious. You don't even know you have them. You have this set of unenforceable rules, we call them. And you start to project them onto your partner, thinking if they behave this way, then you're going to be okay. Well, it doesn't work. That's never going to make you okay. This is the way that uh, Dr. Jerry Greenwald described it. He goes, expectations lead to the erosion of any relationship. The myth that the resolution of loneliness will result because we have found an intimate one-on-one -on -one relationship is really a cop-out. He goes, it begins a toxic process which dissipates the mutual nourishment that occurs when both people are committed to sustaining nourishing interaction and growth of their separate cells. See, I cannot relate to you and enjoy you and encourage you to be who you are and to do what you want to do if I don't have that relationship with myself. If I don't enjoy myself, if I'm not, you know, committed to honoring my integrity, then how can I support you in being who you are if I'm not supporting me in being who I am? It's impossible. I cannot give you what I don't have. In a healthy relationship, it's based on encouraging each other to do what they want, not what you want them to do, not what I want you to do. I want you to be who you are, and I enjoy you for that, and I encourage that in you, especially when it's not what I want you to do. That's when it's really tested inside of us. That's what true love really looks like, or mature love. Eric Fromm described it as union with the preservation of integrity. Union with the preservation of integrity. I join you, but I also remain separate from you. I don't get lost in you, but when I dependent on you, I have the union with no integrity. Now it's all about you doing what I think you should do for me to be okay. Reinforced by what grace I could secure in prayer, I found I had to exert every ounce of will and action to cut off these faulty emotional dependencies upon people, upon AA, indeed upon any act or circumstance whatsoever. Then could I be free to love as Francis did. Emotional and instinctual satisfactions I saw were really the extra dividends of having love, offering love, and expressing love appropriate to each relation of life. So this is oftentimes uh, shocking to people that are in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous because they say, oh my God, isn't AA just replacing an unhealthy dependence with a healthy dependence on the fellowship and on the program and the principles of AA? And Bill's answer is no, no, that's not what the program's about. 
It's not about encouraging a different kind of dependence. See, it's about growing ourselves up. It's about differentiation. It's about now completing what was never completed in our life. You know, I really, really love this different way of thinking about, like even what Rabbi Tob was talking about, is that alcoholism is really a thirst for God, right? It's a thirst for this wholeness. So it's not what's wrong with us that creates a problem. It's what's right about us that we're not paying attention to. You guys see that shift in thinking, right? That's the whole, whole, you know, third wave in psychology brought that concept into, into focus. This, the humanistic psychologist said it's not that we're inherently pathological or the original sin idea, all that other stuff. It's that we have a potential, and if we honor that potential in our lives, then we are going to grow into what we can be and be relatively healthy. Doesn't mean we're not gonna have problems, we are, because that's how we grow. But we're gonna deal with those problems, right? We're gonna learn how to cope with them. So when we interfere with becoming what we can be, is we create a lot of problems in our life. Alcoholics Anonymous, the principles, the transformation that takes place is to help people find or recover their lost true self, right? Our true self is that self that's moving us towards wholeness, that wants you to be what you can be. And when you get in the way of that, you're going to be sick. You're going to, get in, you're going to have trouble. You're going to get depression, anxiety, whatever it is. It's going to show up in all kinds of different ways. Well, Bill realized that. He realizes that he had to cut off his dependency on all these things and learn how to stand on his own two feet for the first time in his life. That's what emotional sobriety is about. It's about freedom. He talks about it later on. When you're free in this way and you let go of these expectations, you can offer love to someone and there's no expectation. See, this is that movement that was never realized towards unconditional love. You can't have unconditional love when you have all these expectations about how things are supposed to be for you to be okay. It's impossible. And it takes a lot of work to get here. You can see why the, the early members of AA had the spiritual bypass. This is heavy stuff to look at. But it's also exciting. Plainly, I could not avail myself to God's love until I was able to offer it back to him by loving others as he would have me. And I couldn't possibly do that so long as I was victimized by false dependencies. For my dependencies meant demand a demand for the possession and control of the people and the conditions surrounding me. While those words absolute dependence may look like a gimmick, they were the ones that helped to trigger my release into my present degree of stability and quietness of mind, qualities which I am now trying to consolidate by offering love to others, regardless of the return to me. So. The pathway is that the emotional dependency that I described, the undifferentiation, now creates these demands on how things are supposed to be, right? Demands or claims on life. Those claims and demands turn into expectations. Those expectations now become unenforceable rules, right? That's the path of the development of these things. 
Now, Bill was saying, my God, he had to really look that this was just riddled through his whole life in terms of how he was behaving, that he did not know how to take care of himself. So it's very interesting when we look at the work of other psychologists and, and people, especially Viktor Frankl's work, listen to what Viktor Frankl observed, right, when he was in the Nazi concentration camp and he was paying attention. Now, see if you see the same theme here, because I do. He goes, and it sounded like they were having AA meetings, to, in my opinion, right? We had to learn ourselves, and furthermore, we had to teach the despairing men that it did not really matter what we expected from life. Wow, you see it? It's the same idea, isn't it? It didn't matter what we expect from life, but rather what mattered is what life expected from us. We needed to think ourselves as those who were being questioned by life and that life ultimately means taking the responsibility, the personal responsibility, to find the right answer to its problems, to the problems that life sets before us, and to fulfill the tasks which it constantly sets for each individual. So what this means is that the trouble you're experiencing in your life doesn't mean something's wrong. It's an invitation for you to take the next step in your differentiation, the next step in your development, the next step in your growth, the next step towards wholeness. See, that's what's happening here. Viktor Frankl saw that. He developed a whole therapy, theory, a theory and therapy around it, right? Logotherapy, right? In terms of helping people find purpose in their life. And, it, and their purpose was to learn how to deal with what was going on in their life not to put these expectations on things. But he's not the only one. Fritz Perls, he talked about the dependency I showed you. Virginia Satir. See, there was a spirit of the times, right? People were seeing that this was the basic problem that we were confronting as individuals. Our failure to grow up. This seems to be the primary healing circuit, an outgoing love of God's creation and his people by means of which we avail ourselves of his love for us. It's most clear that the real current can't flow until our paralyzing dependencies are broken and broken at depth. Only then can we possibly have a glimmer of what adult love really is. If we examine every disturbance we have, great or small, we will find at the root of it some unhealthy dependence and its consequent demand. Let us, with God's help, continually surrender these hobbling demands. Then we can be set free to live and love. We may then be able to gain emotional sobriety. So this was the formula, right? This was the protocol that Bill found to starting to address our emotional dependency into achieving emotional sobriety. At every time that we're, there was something bothering us, whether it was a big deal or a little deal, we needed to look inside at what expectation do we have. Most of the time, our first response is to see who's to blame. It's not to investigate what's happening for us. Well, if you would have done this, or you made me feel this, right? You hear this idea all the time. It's common in our language. You made me angry. Nobody makes you angry. 
In fact, nobody hurts you. Now, that may seem like a surprise. When you're hurt, you're hurting yourself. You're taking what somebody said and assigning a certain meaning to it, relating it to some kind of an expectation you have, and then you're getting upset about it. That's how we get, end up in those places. The other thing that starts to happen here, we realize that, that what somebody else is doing is not personally. You see, when we're emotionally dependent, then we make everything about us. How could you do that to me? If you love me, if you care about me, well, they're not doing it to you. They're just doing it. That's just who they are. It's not a reflection of how they feel about you. And if you want to be more personal with them, you have to start seeing them as they are, not as a reflection of your expectations and demands. In fact, that's what Martin Buber called, you know, True love is when I see you as you are, not as I need you to be. That's the goal here. But it's hard to get to unless we unpack these expectations. And this is the formula he used. He emphasized it again when he wrote the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions. He says it's a spiritual axiom that every time we're disturbed, no matter what the cause, there's something wrong with us. The question is, what's wrong with us? Well, we're talking about it now. What's wrong with us is this other validated self-esteem. I love how Virginia Satir talks about it. She goes, when something goes wrong, I try to make a picture in my mind of a big circle, and I put myself in the middle. And then I ask myself, what part in my problem are my thoughts playing? Are my fears playing? Are my expectations? Are my demands? Are my interpretations of what just happened? I'd also include... Am I taking it personally, right? And then she asked herself, is this being caused by my lack of faith to be able to grow? You see, when I'm stuck with the I'm okay if mentality, then I am denigrating myself. I'm depleting my possibilities. I'm dismissing who I can be. Because if I think I need you to be a certain way to be okay, what does that make me? Chopped liver, right? I don't have any role in it. I'm completely dependent on you. Well, that's true. When you were in mom's womb, that was the case for you. But it's not anymore. Of course, I haven't offered you a really new idea. Only a gimmick that has started to unhook several of my own hexes at depth. Nowadays, my brain no longer races compulsively in either elation grandiosity, or depression. I've been given a quiet place in bright sunshine. Wow. What, well, I call it, this Bill's fourth legacy, right? First legacy Dr. Bob and Bill made was the 12 steps. The second one were the 12 traditions. And the third one was uh, the general service office, right, to disseminate and create the organization. I think this is the fourth legacy that he left people in recovery. But as you can see, it's not limited to just people in recovery. These are principles of good living, right? These are principles that grow us along these spiritual lines. Now remember at the beginning of this, we talked about a vital spiritual experience creating a rearrangement, a reorganization of one's personality. Do you see what's shifting now? Do you see what's taking place? Right? It's totally shifting our paradigm in terms of what we think we need to have happen in order for us to be okay. And it's putting us into a central role that we can now finally have agency in our life. 
and not be the victims of all of these things. Emotional sobriety is about emotional freedom. I said this, is the quest for greater awareness of ourselves and our world is a healthy approach to living, and it allows us to achieve emotional sobriety. So this emotional sobriety creates this emotional freedom, right, which results in a true independence of our spirit. All right, what I do determines my experience, not the experience I'm having. So what we say is that we claim the experience we're having, we don't let the experience we are having claim us, right? We flip that around. <laughs> Should I say that again? It's a little tricky. So we don't let the experience that we're having claim us. We flip it around. We claim that experience. So we now, you know, I like to think of it as we chew that experience up and digest it so we can grow from it. Today, um, you know, we talked a lot about post-traumatic stress. And um, today we've flipped the script on that. It's post-traumatic growth. Post-traumatic growth is possible when you've had a trauma. But you have to have a different relationship to the trauma you've had. You have to digest it a certain way. You have to chew it up. You have to take from that experience what will grow you, and you have to let go of the rest. That's what your biology does. That's what your digestive system does. You take an apple in, you chew it up, you take what you need from the apple and you get rid of the rest. And at some point, once you've assimilated that apple, you can't even call it an apple anymore. It's now you, right? You can't say this is an apple, now it's a part of you. Well, you can do that with any experience you're having in life. But you have to be able and willing to you know, walk through the hell gates of suffering at times. This is not easy stuff. So lack of faith in ourselves to cope with life on life's terms leads to this emotional dependency. And at any moment in our recovery, in our lives, we can begin the process to break out of our emotional dependency and find this emotional sobriety. So I'm not going to have time. There's only five minutes left, so I'm going to run through this pretty quickly. So this is the heart of emotional sobriety. Life is not what it's supposed to be. It is what it is. It is how we cope with it that makes the difference. It's back to what Viktor Frankl said, right? We got to let go of our expectations about what life is supposed to be. Once we do that, we can now get on with dealing with whatever demands life is making of us at this time. So this is what Frankl said about this essence of emotional sobriety. He says there's a space between the stimulus and the response, right? There's a space in between it. He says, in that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. Try to live in that space. When you're emotionally dependent, you do not live in the space. You are reactive. So the stimulus and response are right on top of one another. What we want to do is we say, don't take the first think. <laughs> Instead of the first drink, right? Don't take the first think. Pause for a minute. Give yourself a chance to get some space between what's going on and to get perspective. Remember, we all have that dumb and raging Mr. Hyde. Give yourself a chance to let the best in you weigh in. And it's not going to be oftentimes your first response. So this is a definition I have. It's a mental state. 
Emotional sobriety is a mental state to which we do not react to our changing emotions as though they were an infallible guide to the truth and therefore govern the governing facts of our lives. Just as physical sobriety emerges as we gain independence from our active urges or addictive urges, emotional sobriety emerges as we gain freedom from our emotional storms. We recognize that our emotions are reactions to people and conditions around us and we give them simply the amount of tension that is reasonable or fitting for that specific situation. Emotional sobriety develops when we accept life on its terms rather than demanding that life, people, and situations conform to our expectations. When we do this, we gain emotional freedom, a true independence of spirit, which our innermost or truest self is the determining force in our lives. I go on to say it's appropriate balance and coordination of what we are. We, it's when we bring into harmony those aspects of ourselves that are disharmonious, and they become joint contributors to our wholeness. When we balance our need for togetherness with our desire for separa uh, separateness, and it's when the best in us does the thinking and talking for all of us, right? When the best in us, that's what this emotional sobriety looks like. And this is where it's so important to face it, because as Fritz says, as long as you fight a symptom, it will become worse. If you take responsibility for what you're doing to yourself, putting these expectations on people and on life, how you produce your symptoms, how you produce your illness, how you produce your existence, you get in touch with yourself, then growth begins, integration begins. So this is what Bill said, summing this stuff up. He says, sobriety is only the bare beginning. It is only the first gift of the first awakening. And if more gifts are to be received, our awakening has to go on. And if it does go on, we find that bit by bit, we can disguise that old life, right? The one that didn't work, that was based on all these expectations, for a new life that can and does work under any conditions, whatever, regardless of success or failure, pain or joy, sickness or health, or even death itself, a new life of endless possibilities can be lived if we are willing to continue our awakening. That's what emotional sobriety is about. It's continuing our awakening. It's opening ourselves up to this possibility, that this new possibility, right? I describe recovery as the discovery of new possibilities in our life. And that's what we've seen here. So let me get to my new book is just out. It was uh, the number one new release, 12 Essential Insights for Emotional Sobriety. That's available on Amazon. Um, it's also, I believe, on Kindle. It's not out as an audio book yet. There's also an emotional sobriety study area available at 4dphd.com where you can get in to see my lectures and all of those other things. And it's only $12.99 a month. We're going to have an, a meeting every month where you get to sit with me and, and chat about this stuff. So it's really exciting. We've just started that. And here is some of my other books that are available on Amazon, but I want to get to you my email address so you guys can write to me. There you go, abphd at msn.com. If you'd like these slides, if you'd like to get on the mailing list, go to my website, subscribe. There's going to be a bunch of workshops coming up, and I'm going to be talking about to Rabbi um, Chase Tob about doing a workshop together here in the near future. My website's the same thing, www.abphd.com. Well, thank you for coming today and listening. I sure have enjoyed being here with you and sharing this information. God bless. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings. 
and TorahCafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.